Morning. Morning. Welcome once again to By Grace Community Church. We're thrilled that all of you are here to worship with us. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open up to the book of 2 Samuel. We're going to go to the last chapter. It's okay to applaud there. A hundred or more Sundays we have spent together working our way through 1st and 2nd Samuel. Today we come to the concluding chapter. 2nd Samuel chapter 24, beginning in verse 1. Again, the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May Yahweh your God add to the people a hundred times as many as there are, while the eyes of my lord the king still see it. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began from Aror and from the city that is still in the middle of the valley toward Gad and on to Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to Kadesh in the land of the Hittites. And they came to Dan, and from Dan they went around to Sidon and came to the fortress of Tyre, to all the cities of the Hivites and Canaanites. And they went out to Negeb of Judah at Beersheba. So th when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword. And the men of Judah were 500,000. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to Yahweh, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Yahweh, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I've done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says Yahweh, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee for three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of Yahweh, for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. 
So Yahweh sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, Yahweh relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of Yahweh was by the threshing floor in Aranas, the Jebusite. Then David spoke to Yahweh when he said to the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, rise, and altar to, the, to Yahweh on the threshing floor of Arona the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as Yahweh commanded. And when Arona looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Arana went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Arana said, why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said, to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to Yahweh that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Arana said to David, let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for wood. All this, O king, Arana gives to the king. And Arana said to the king, May Yahweh your God accept you. But the king said to Arana, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to Yahweh my God, that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to Yahweh and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So Yahweh responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, this chapter that I just read is your word. It is given to your people that we might know the true history of your work on earth, that we might know who you are, and by that revelation, come to you in faith, in obedience, in truthfulness, Father, we ask that you would take the weeks and months and, yes, years of our study in 2 Samuel and 1 Samuel, and that you will continually reveal your Son to us through it, through lessons learned and stories understood. Father, we come eager eager to offer you the praise that you are worthy of, eager to hear your voice, to be discerned from among all the noise of the world that we live in. 
Father, we pray that we would rightly know you. And that only happens by the power of your Spirit testifying to us of the true glory and nature of the Redeemer that you have sent, Jesus Christ. May he be glorified in the words that follow as he is in the words preserved. We ask you to do this in the name of Jesus, our mighty Savior, our glorious Redeemer, and our only hope. It's in his name all of us agree. Amen. All right, we made it. We're here. Last chapter, you can woo, that's good. Wake yourself up. Who needs coffee when you got joy? Although coffee and joy are also really good together. In the passage we've just read, I want to give you a simple structure for memory. And sometimes as we work our way through Scripture, it is essential for us to have both literary structure and literary markers in our study, but sometimes it also helps to have a simple structure, one that can be easily remembered. So here's the simple structure, and as I teach you about the simple structure, the deacons are passing out among you a handout for the chiastic structure that we will get to later on this morning. But for now... Three sections to this passage. This is verses 2 through 9, David and Joab. 10 through 19, David and Gad. 20 through 25, David and Arana. Isn't that easy? The whole passage is put together in three conversations. David with Joab, David with Gad the prophet, and David with Arana, who's the owner of the place where God stayed the plague. David and Joab, David and Gad, David and Arana. But we also should not shrink away from some early questions in this chapter that make their way through those three conversations. But let me open with a question. Why do we know what is right and don't do it? Why do we know what is right and we don't do it? We can instantly, theologically, we're in church, our mind might quickly go to the theological understanding of sin of a sin nature, of a union mysterious that we have with Adam, our forefather, and his failure in the Garden of Eden at the onset of God's interaction with men. We can go philosophically that there is a desire to rebel. Philosophers wrestle with this question all the time. Where does suffering and evil come from? Where is the penchant for harm? Why are we quick to bloodthirst? Philosophers try to grapple in such ways. Parents grapple in this way. Schizophrenically, if we're honest. Why do we know 
what is right for us to do, but we let exhaustion override. Or is that just me and Liz? We know that consistency in parenting is one of the most important aspects. Yes, have the same lines, that the kids are not on edge, wondering, is this going to be okay or not? And then also, sometimes with a fury that's even surprising to us, we ask the question, why do they know what is right? And they don't do it. If you have preschooler, kindergartner, teenager, 50-year-old, anybody in your life that you love is going to battle this question. Why do we know what is right and we don't do it? The story today begins with God's assessment of David's sinfulness. David wants to number the people. This is a fact. God is angry that David wants to number the people. And so lots of times, people spend their activity trying to parse out how is God permissive of sin and never the cause of sin? Yes? How is it that God is so sovereign, so good, so merciful, and so just that his anger might feel quick to us? In fact, I think as we are fresh in our faith and we're seeking to study the scripture honestly, early on in that journey, there are many times we come across moments of seemingly harmless activity that God not only prohibits, he enforces by wrath. And sometimes that wrath of God feels arbitrary. Now, the more you study the Bible, the more you can begin to see the purposes and priorities that God has for his people, for his creation. And we can begin to understand more easily, more simply, what it is that God is ultimately defending his glory, his character, and penultimately defending, protecting the benefit of his people, the good of his people. Not the perceived good, thank the Lord, but real good, lasting good. I am grateful for the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 3, first section. It outlines clearly the markers that we should understand about the sovereignty of God in his providence. That God is sovereign over all things with the noted limitation, self-imposed, that he is never the author of sin. He's never, lawyer speak, culpable. And two, he never violates the will of the people 
he governs. Can you see the two markers? He's never responsible for a sin or a sinful nature system, anything, as its author, as its creator, as its culpable, responsible agent. And we are free to act upon the will we have. Now, that will that we have requires further discussion for another day. But I will say, we inherit a fallen will in Adam. Because of our union with Adam and Eve in the fall in the garden, we are born sinful. Why do we know what is right and don't do it? Adam. And Adam does what we would do were it us. So there are times where we look at Adam and we go, punk, jerk, thanks a lot. And we can develop a a weird sort of bitterness and detachment as if somehow it's unfair that we are united to Adam in the fall. You with me? But if you will not have Adam as your representative, then it is also unfair for you to have Jesus as your representative. We want representative headship just as the Bible explains it, decrees it, and gives it. In Adam we fall. In Christ, we rise. And in each case, they are our substitute, if you will. Our head, our representative. So when we see these seemingly harmless activities that God says that is off limits, that is prohibited, that is not good for you, When it feels arbitrary to us and we begin to ask questions about, well, where is the line and how do we understand it? It's important for us to see ourselves in David's place. Now, do all of you, you know, rule a kingdom? Hey, dads, you don't rule a kingdom. You steward a kingdom that God has given you. It is not yours to do with it as you please. Mothers don't say amen too loud. So what's with the anger that God has stirred up against David? What's wrong with numbering your people? Well, much of the commentary interaction here throughout more than a thousand years, centers essentially on four possibilities. But let me say at the onset, we don't know. And everybody here loves it when we don't know. But we don't. All we are doing is inferring or speculating. So hold these loosely in your hand, but they might help you get a sense of the text. 
And if you really want to get into this, you can check out the parallel passage in 1 Chronicles 27. But for now, I offer you these four ideas. One, numbering the people of Israel would lead David to think he is self-sufficient in his decision-making. So either he wants to prepare or he wants to brag or he wants to see himself as ruler in a lesser way than as God's appointee and more like my kingdom. So self-sufficiency, a motive of self-sufficiency could be part of the problem. Ego equally could be part of the problem. David wants to brag amongst all the other kings about how good his army is or how big it is or how it is to be feared by number and not by the name of Yahweh. Third possibility, and I think this one has the most import. I think what raises up God's anger towards David is that he's preparing for a future military conquest that hasn't been authorized, explained, decreed. If you notice the language involved as you work your way through the text, you will see it is about sword-bearing men. So the old men, not counted. The teens, the youngsters, the boys who will become men, not counted. Just preparing for battle. But from 1 Chronicles 27, verses 23 and 24, we might get a good insight here that David asks Joab not just to number the soldiers, the war-eligible men, but also to keep a special count of those who are not yet of fighting age, that he might develop longer-term or far-future expectations for military conquests. So, why is God upset? We don't know. But hear it. Again, the anger of Yahweh, verse 1, was kindled against Israel. And he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the king calls to Joab, because it's been made clear, he, David is not leaving the throne or the palace, Go to Joab, and he speaks to the commander of his army who's with him, and they're conversing about this situation, and he gives him specific instructions about where to go, and actually, in First Chronicles, he gives him the route in a specific way similar to here. Joab's response to David's order is, may Yahweh your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are while the eyes of my Lord the King still shall see it. But why are we doing this? Why are you so bent on this? In other words, even his top commander isn't sold on the benefits of this idea. It might be that David wants to number the people so that he can levy a tax 
There's sort of precedent pre-David for that idea. But I think Joab here is understanding the tension between what do we have and is it big enough? Because Joab's response before he asks the question is the statement or the seeming prayer almost, David, I want God to grow us numerically a hundredfold. Awesome. Yes, I would want that. Why are we numbering this? What's your real motive here? Right, Joab is prying at motive. He's prying at reason. He wants to know what we often want to know. Why? Why will I spend the better part of a year away from my family, away from your throne and the palace and your protection? Why am I as general taking soldiers to do census work? Isn't that a little weird? Like, don't you send the bureaucrats and then some bodyguards? He's sending the military might in order to get a truthful count that wouldn't come otherwise? What, what's the role of the soldiers and the general in this endeavor? It's easy to come up with more questions. In fact, the more you hang out with me, the more questions you're going to have. Right, kids? Yeah. You're welcome. But Joab, in responding to the king, asks about David's delight at the end of verse 3. And then in 4 it says, but the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders, did you catch the plural there? Of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. You get the sense that like the whole council is against this? We already know from the jump that God is against this. But at some level, the king is the king. And he does as he pleases. And he answers to God for what he does. So they go and they, they do the work, they cross the Jordan, they gather all the intel. It takes an enormous amount of time. Nine months and 20 days, you can have a baby in that time. And Joab gave the final count. 800,000 men, valiant men, warriors, those who draw the sword. And... There's also 500 men from Judah. So already you see this kind of northern, southern tribal split. That's going to play a big deal in post-Solomon, yes? But then we're told in verse 10 that David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. This is a good thing for the Lord to give conviction that his spirit would show you your fault. It's better when you listen before you fail. But it does not mean that you live the rest of your life in ignorance. That is a good gift. But we never like it 
in the moment. We're part of a presbytery as a church, and our presbytery has to receive reports of all our session meetings, and the deacons have to have meetings that they give to the session, and there's this chain of information passing up, and it's evaluated, and then responses are made back down. Well, in the history of our church, we write the minutes in such a way as to never get dinged. Seriously. Some of it is pat, you know, practicing a little bit of vagary, a little bit of spin, if we're honest. Sorry, guys, it's true. But also, it's a comfort. It's a comfort to know that there are men charged by God to lead and oversee us as elders as we are men charged by God to help oversee the life of this local church. Well, for the first time in a long time, we got a ding, which means they looked at all our minutes for the whole year, and they had a question or a response that said, we have a problem with this sentence or this idea. Can you tell us more about this, or can you just note that you did it wrong and fix it for the future? And it's not a big deal. We're not on trial. It's not a big thing. But it was interesting because as I was being told about the silly technical ding on our minutes, I was launched back to being a child, busted, caught. Oh no. My parents were not heavy disciplinarians, they were often just and fair and given me enough time, merciful. But also, that feeling is hard. It can be hard to have the mirror of your action, the truthfulness of your error, your sin, your chosen failures. In the case of our church and our minutes, it was an oversight. We didn't word something exactly the way we should have. So we're going to investigate the way we should have said it. We'll fix it. No big deal. But sometimes... The Lord shows us big failures, big blindnesses, big bad choices. And we have a choice in that moment. Do we yield now and take justice and mercy as it's meted out by the authority over us? Or do we dig in our heels and turn it in to rope war? You with me? You tug? All of you know this when you work with the right age of children. I love the age where I'm so big I can literally pick them up, no rope needed. But sometimes... Your kids are older and stronger and resist, or your employees are older and stronger and resist, and you find yourself tugging in war against what is good, what is true. And that's where the spin grows, the bitterness takes root, the anger and ostracization is real. One of the things I most admire about David is his honest confessions. 
Samuel's filled with a few of them. And they are functionally very different than Saul's confessions. If you remember far back, Saul, like Pharaoh, can offer greatly worded confessions. And five seconds later, they are empty of meaning and in the past with no more memory. This is not true with David. David will lean in when most of us lean out. David is fine with realizing that he was wrong, even when he doesn't understand all its elements. So let's be clear. We don't have great understanding of the motive of David for taking the census, for numbering the soldiers. But we know it was wrong because God says it was wrong. This is the stated fact of the text. We are not always given a reason for Yahweh's anger or wrath. Does this bother you? We want to say, of course not. God is free to set the rules. He's free to say this is good and this is bad. And it's his creation. We're his people. He gets to determine. And yet, there are many times in our lives where we're asking the question, does this bother us? And the answer is, yeah, it does. I do think sometimes God has to explain himself to me. That God has to justify his actions. That God has to justify his priorities. And maybe I'm alone in this room. Maybe you're mature far beyond that. But I think if we're really honest, there are times, and maybe more than we want to say, we are upset about texts in Scripture that clearly tell us about God's anger, but don't easily or clearly tell us why that's true. And this is a tension in all parenting relationships. When do they just do it because I said it? And when do I step down and condescend to come and see them eye to eye and explain to them things they don't know, things they can't see, implications they can't comprehend, and try to help them understand that I'm not being flippant or arbitrary. I'm not saying, well, today I'm in a bad mood. My girls know a coach that this is true of. That her bad moods dictate everyone else's experience of practice or game day. And as her mood rises and falls, so too do the girls get held to capricious rules or punishments. There's a brutality to that, and even, if it's unintended, a cruelty to some of that. When do we come low and explain why, and when is our history of loving them to be measured and remembered? We're not mean and brutal, might feel harsh, but it might not be harsh. Might be clear or important. But we all know 
the level of mistrust that we have. And y'all, that is super in vogue right now. In our cultural moment, mistrusting authority could be a creed of our culture. There are times where God is angry and he doesn't tell us why. There are times where parents are angry and they can't fully explain it or that they're upset about something you've done or are doing that leads them to fury. And, and sometimes they just want obedience and we can figure the rest out sooner or later. Do we have a lack of trust in God? Do we have a lack of trust? Because parents can fail. Parents can be wrong. Bosses fail. Bosses can be wrong. Doctors fail. They can misdiagnose. Authority in our realm can't be absolute because it will evidently fall upon weak, fail, finite people. But are we angry at times that God is not transparent? Are there times where we believe that God should explain himself more? Should there be no mysteries in God? Does he owe us explanation for anything? Are his emotions subject to our approval? Should they be? His activities subject to our approval? His purposes subject to our approval? We know the answer. What's the answer? It's no. No, of course not. He's God and he sees things clearly. <laughs> I'm looking through foggy mirrors at best. Clouded and shattered lenses. I can only contain but so much understanding and information and he has it in infinite measure. So as David is seeking to confess his wrong, he does so to a God who makes himself known in such a way that David can see his sin and respond to his sin. So David speaks to Yahweh, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, and he says, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Yahweh, please take away the iniquity of your servant. I have done very foolishly. And David arose in the morning, and the word of Yahweh came to the prophet Gad. You know, God using his systems that he has given Israel. Because the priesthood and the kingship are, until Jesus comes, separated. Not too much power in one place. So the prophet Gad comes and says to David, all right, here's what Yahweh says. You got three options. Verse 12, I need you to choose one of them and then, then God's going to do it to you. Verse 13, so Gad came to David and told him, saying to him, shall three years of famine come to you, Israel, in your land? Or will you flee 
three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Did you guys ever read Choose Your Own Adventure books growing up? Who loved them? All right, Hawthorne's about to jump out of his chair. <laughs> Why do we love them? Yeah, control. Self-determinism. It's a bedrock of our culture and our pride. Sometimes it's the worst thing a parent gives. I have three terrible punishments for you. You can pick which one you want. This is a brutal choice. Do not sympathize with David in the brutality of this choice more than in the generosity of God who gives choice. Three years of famine. Uh, we've done that one, remember? Three months of fleeing and retreat. Three months of the Philistines battling in you and your family and all of your things having to run and relocate and hide and fight and knowing that every time you do fight, you lose. So three years famine, three months fleeing retreat. Or if you want to rip the Band-Aid off real fast, three days plague what would you choose what's better what's worse can I have a fourth option but it has to be of a different categorical level three hours of inhuman torture like what's the are we okay with this are we okay with God Almighty pouring out his wrath in such a way on his chosen people because of one man's disobedience? Yeah, we are. And if we're not, we should be. We should be. Pick your punishment. David almost picks his punishment. Notice verse 14. David says, let us fall into the hand of Yahweh. Kind of eliminating the second option and leaving the other two choices to God. I don't want to deal with something that men control. David wants this to be direct with the Lord. Verse 15, so Yahweh sent a pestilence upon the land. Yahweh picked the third option, and in three days, there were 700,000 casualties. 70,000 casualties. I love you guys. Thank you. The text matters, not Kevin's words. 70,000 casualties, which is quite a dent in the proud tallies of verse 9. Hundreds of thousands reduced 
by 70,000. And numerologists throughout church history start to do a lot of work on 333 as the options and 7 times 10,000 as the plague. But for our purposes, I want you to see something more important. At the very heart of this chapter, Yahweh is inflicting his wrath on Israel. But his wrath is immediately bookended on both sides by highlights of mercy. Notice, and this is where your handout comes to play, notice the chiastic structure of the passage in your hands. This is important because it's the literary device that is used in this ultimate climactic moment in all of the book of Samuel. Remember first and second, that's just for ease sake. This is one book, two volumes of one book. The climactic structure of the last chapter is chiastic. And sometimes chiasms can be like the boogeyman. You can kind of find them anywhere. But this one is super textually clear. And if you follow the matching corresponding level on your sheet, the closer you get to the middle, the more important what's being said. You were taught in the Greek method in every school you went into. That you write your essays with your main idea where? Boom! Thesis. What am I going to say? I did learn something, Mom. And you end with your conclusion. Final point. And what you've said and explained already. You start with it and you end with it. Which is our tradition. As predominantly Gentile peoples. In Hebrew, the more important of the thing that's happening, it's found in the middle. It is a building up and a coming down in individual episodic elements. In other words, this wrath that we don't really understand all the reasons behind is wrapped in mercy. It is wrath... 15, wrapped in highlights of mercy. In verse 14, David cries out, let us fall into the hand of Yahweh. Why? His mercy is what? It's a little bit? He sprinkles it a couple of times like salt on eggs? Or does he bathe it like buffalo sauce on a chicken wing? Right? This is wrath. It's not not wrath. It's full wrath. It's true wrath. Israel is experiencing not a tiny little measure of wrath, but the whole of wrath in a limited place. David expresses two elements of emotion and two elements of motivation. In verse 14, he's expressing a palpable mix of resignation. God will do as God will do. And consolation. 
It is God who will do the doing. Can you feel it? The, the full submission and resignation, the knee bent. You're the authority and you are true. You are just. You don't lack any information. You don't have any biases that are unfair to me. I will never get injustice from God. David is resigned to that truth. I did what we are being judged for. Would that every child at the moment of, you know, your sin being revealed to you inwardly or outwardly, we said, yes. Yes, I did. Yes, I didn't do. Yes, I agree with you. I am that man. I am that girl. I did it. And also, my mom loves me. My mom would take bullets for me. My mom lays down hours of every single day. My boss, if he's good, works hard so that I can shine, prepares well so that you can do what they're asking you to do. This is true in all authority relationships, we hope. But it's never more true than it is with God Almighty. David comes with resignation and consolation. And here's what I want us to take away from this. Our greatest theology is for our darkest moments. It is easy to learn here a bunch of things that I or others have taught you, that you've read, that you've digested, and that you understand philosophically or theologically. It is another whole deal to grab hold of it in a way that the darker the moment, the brighter the truth shines. The brighter the trust emulates and, and, and grows, illuminating the moment. Our greatest theology should bring assurance and comfort most in our darkest moments. Do you view mercy as a divine exception or as a divine characteristic? Is God begrudging in his mercy? I ask you, is God begrudging in his mercy? Is he stingy with it? Is he generous with mercy? David is a man gripped by grace. David throws himself on the only place he most belongs. The mercy seat of God. The God who can bring atonement for real wrongdoing. Our greatest theology is for these darkest moments. I have said many times to loved ones and congregants, friends and strangers, that the gospel hope and rope holds. True? That in every moment, in every darkness, in every circumstance that overwhelms you, in every moment of real injustice or perceived injustice, does not the rope of the gospel that God ties around as support for his people, does that rope hold? If that rope holds, and if God is holding the consequential end of that rope, are you 
good? Are you safe? In the midst of terror, are you good? I used to lead kids on ropes courses, and they would be trembling, uncertain as to whether or not the harness will hold. The buckles are good. That they, as they cling to the wire or tree or apparatus, are they good? Are they safe? Are they okay? Terrified, but okay. Are you safe in the hands of a holy God? Only by the blood of Christ. Only by the blood of Jesus Christ. I want you to see mercy restraining God's wrath. Notice this whole interaction that David has. Verse 15, Yahweh sent the pestilence on Israel and 70,000 men die. And in 16, and when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, Yahweh relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, what does God say to the angel? It is enough. Stay your hand. It is enough. Stay your hand. And the angel of Yahweh was by the threshing floor in Arana's, the Jebusite's house. In other words, it's near this wooden barn. Is Israel atoned for in verse 16? There's a mistake that I see made here. Thinking that God has satisfaction when he only has stayed the wrath. The problem is not resolved at the end of verse 16. God's wrath is stayed, yes, but it is not satisfied. And God's wrath must always be propitiated. Notice the clear connection in the text that follows between the anticipated sacrifices and the restraining of the plague. They are chronologically backwards from what we would think. We would think, hurry up, build the altar before the Lord gets to Jerusalem. And God says, no, no, I have a plan for Jerusalem that's different. A little over a thousand years from now, Jerusalem will be destroyed. A Roman general will come and take that city to such a degree and with such brutal force that not one stone will be left where it was before. God's wrath must be propitiated. The anticipated sacrifices appear to be enough to restrain the plague. Here is the high point. Do you see this building? This mercy wrapping wrath God provides the altar upon which his wrath is atoned for. Do you see it? David goes at Gad's command and speaks with Arana. And Arana is like, this is so important. Thanks for not destroying my whole house. You can have my barn. In fact, let me give you the oxen before this moment is gone fully. 
can I just give you the stuff? And David, knowing the Lord well, says, can't do it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord something that does not cost me something. Is David creating this idea or emulating it? Who is it who says, I will not allow you on your own to bring the atonement that satisfies me? It must come at a cost that I will pay. The Lord Jesus. So here we are. God provides the altar that he will be satisfied by. This is where his wrath can be quenched and our guilt can be atoned for. And this altar is not just for guilty David. It is for sinful Israel of whom I am grafted into. It is for sinful Israel of whom I have been grafted into. And this is a typological preview of what Jesus will do on the cross. Listen to the Gospel of Mark in chapter 15. I'll give you just two verses of Jesus on the cross. Mark 15, verses 33 and 34. When the sixth hour had come, that's noon, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, three o'clock. Darkness over everything. Verse 34. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cries out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, Lima, Sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is quoting Psalm 22, and he's trying to help us understand the very nature of the atonement that he is providing. A righteous atonement requires a pure sacrifice, a holy altar, and a mediator between the sacrifice, the altar, and a holy God. Jesus is on the cross, all three. He is sacrifice as righteous human. Perfect blood. We can agree with John, his cousin, John the Baptist, who says, behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. He is sacrifice in his humanity. He's the fully incarnated God. Not part God, not a little God, not sprinkled with God. He is the invisible display of the true and real God of all glory and creation. And therefore, he is the only fully proper altar that that sacrifice of holy blood could be given upon. True man True God, sacrifice and altar. The book of Hebrews goes out of its way to help us understand that he is also holy, perfect mediator. The only mediator between God and man because he is in one person, 
two-natured, perfectly, fully. This is not an academic exercise. It is so that we will understand the essential joy of mercy that wraps wrath. It is essential because in the hour of darkness, Jesus was forsaken. As our substitute, he enters our darkness, bearing the penalty for our sin, that we would not be in darkness again. And that we would never accuse him of forsaking us. Our best theology, our greatest theology, is for our darkest moments. God is not one who asks you to invent the way to please him. He provides the altar. He is the sacrifice. And he is the mediator that takes that holy sacrifice, places it on the only holy altar, and mediates that sacrifice in the very throne room of heaven that we would be free. That all pestilence and wrath against us would not just be stayed, but satisfied. What's the theological witness of this text? God not only restrains his wrath. In mercy, God provides the way of removing his wrath. Our greatest theology for our darkest of moments. I have never done this before and I may never do it again. But I'm going to quote me. On the cross, Jesus knew the fullest weight of darkness and wrath so that you will know the fullest beauty and light and peace of his love. All of his wrath, real and terrifying, all of his wrath wrapped in a character of mercy. Amen. Amen. Please pray with me, Heavenly Father. I thank you, Lord, that we don't come to church to leave. I thank you, Father, that you give us a word that is mighty and rich. I thank you that you have not abandoned us to ourselves. I thank you that all of the justice that we have deserved has been removed from us. Father, would you move in your people? Would you sink your word so deep in our hearts and our minds that when the world shouts, we can remain steady that when the circumstances of life dump on our head and we feel the floods rising against us or the fire burning against us, Lord, that we know that you are with us and that you have done more than is what necessary to satisfy justice, to satisfy the demands of righteous anger against us. Father, thank you that your discipline is true and mercy-wrapped. For all who believe, Father, thank you. May we wonder in the atonement of Christ 
fresh today and every day. It's in Jesus' name we ask.